0: Evening, Dan. Good evening, Emma. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How
1: are you doing at this later hour? Yeah, well, it's it, totally my fault, so we can um, completely blame me. Um, yeah, seeing as we're half an hour before Champions League kick-off, but um, better
0: late than never. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for being so accommodating. Not at all. Not at all. I think we've timed this pretty well. Like uh, We were chatting earlier in the week about what, what to discuss today, and I think um, the topic of Graham Potter came up, and he had his first match on the weekend postponed obviously and and now he's got his first game imminently um, if I'm right in saying I don't know I've actually I I could have easily missed the kickoff. it's been a crazy week for me and I I very easily could have missed the early kickoff here but uh, I think it's his first game kicking off shortly and I thought he's a really good really interesting case study about English coaches and uh, and about poaching of coaches and like you know I think uh, he's a really interesting character and uh, I wanted to dig into him a little bit. But I also think as well you know when we talk about um,
1: Premier League managers that are, I guess, English, and maybe maybe we shouldn't be making such a distinction between English and UK and non UK managers, um, but you know, in a way, um, the the type of big club, elite club manager has tended to be um, the foreign foreign coaches that have come in because they have excelled um, at a number of clubs, being able to balance domestic. And uh, I guess, uh, international club competitions with some relative success, and that's obviously m- melded or merged with the need to balance um, you know big personalities and dressing rooms, and everything that comes with playing weekend and midweek, especially this run to the World Cup as well. And I was fascinated in you know your insights generally in analysis because, I know that you've looked at this um, 21st club in, uh, in 21st group in quite a lot of detail over some time. And, you know, I think there's loads of fascinating elements to par- pathways for English coaches, one thing, um, and whether actually there has been that much of a pathway because of obviously the elite set of coaches that have come in and done a pretty good
0: job over the last period of time with EPL clubs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, firstly, on the point around um, not making the distinction between English and, and UK coaches. And I think generally that's true. Um, the, the, the one distinction I would say is Scottish coaches, you know, have obviously probably enjoyed a lot more success than the English game for um, reasons that I, I'm sure people, um, other people know much better than me, um, you know, in terms of the, the kind of hotspots in in Glasgow and, and so on. Uh, There's a few of those coaches seemingly coming through now, but yeah, Scotland has been a unique case, but I would group the likes of Brendan Rogers and Steve Cooper in, Quote unquote English coaches, even though they are, you know, Welsh and Northern Irish, uh, because they've come through the English system to to a degree. I'd almost group someone like uh, Mikel Arteta as as an English coach um, because he's come through the English coaching system. Um, So I think that there's a bit of a distinction that um, is worthy of of debate. But I I was looking through ahead of our chat, I was looking through um, Premier League list of Premier League managers, a very, very handy Wikipedia page, uh, and you can order it by nationality and you can just go through each club. And see, you know, how many English coaches that they had, English managers that they had, um, and you know, Chelsea. I, we forget that Grant, um, Frank Lampard was actually a deal um, because they had had, you know, overseas coaches um, consistently through the Ramovitch era. Uh, in fact, the last English coach, opponent English coach that they had was Glenn Hoddle in 1996, which was obviously very, very different Chelsea at the time. Uh, Liverpool have only had uh, one in recent years. Obviously, Roy Hodgson didn't really work out um, at Liverpool before that. Roy Evans. In the Premier League era, Man City have had no one um, since Stuart Pearce, which is obviously before um, the, the, the existing ownership. Uh, Man United, uh, obviously, um, again, haven't had an English coach. Michael Carrick was, uh, was briefly caretaker. Uh, and then Spurs have had a couple of English coaches, most notably Harry Redknapp and Tim Sherwood. But again, not, you know, the, the list of names are Lampard, Sherwood, Redknapp, Hodgson, they're, they're quite, there's no kind of uniform theme. them whereas you think of other nationalities you think of whether it's german coaches or uh, argentinian coaches or whatever it is they tend to have a kind of consistent theme and narrative feel about them whether it's about playing style or the background of the development and so on Um, and i think that points to the fact that english coaches do the 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 pathways for english coaches and and english developed coaches is is not incredibly clear-cut um and there's there's a few reasons for that i think historically a big difference is the language we use in this country we we've often referred to our coaches as, as managers and i think that is changing increasingly you see that the managers at clubs um with the titles of head coaches which potentially brings with it different responsibilities and different um standing with within the club um and, and so I, I suppose when when you've got an expectation of being a manager versus a coach they're, they're very different things and and i think there's been a feeling sometimes that um the certainly players that come out of retirement in England and that is ultimately your biggest pool of um, of coaches rightly or wrongly um, that that pool um, has felt that they should go into management rather than coaching and coaching does re- require a different set of skills um, and I think one of the big differences between particularly uh, uh, England to Spain and France and to a degree Germany as well um, is is B teams which I think we've discussed before but you know that there's the likes of Zidane and, and Guardiola, um, and, and it's not just B teams. It's also like a, a quite a strong youth team culture. I think in, in those countries as well, particularly Germany. I think I think I'm right in saying Tuchel was was a youth team coach, um, possibly at Mainz. Um, there's you know a lot of the coaches you look at there came through under 19 teams, under 17 teams, whatever it was, um, and, and that you can't be a manager in those environments. You can only be a coach in those environments, and they are seen as the pathway through to first team coaching management, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I think that, that youth team culture hasn't really existed in this country. Obviously, you know, for years we had the reserves, which was of, you know, which was older players and, and it was it was a very different culture. Obviously with the E triple P, I think things have changed a lot within academies in terms of the culture around coaching at youth level. And I and you know I think that correlates now with just the initial seeds of, of coaches that are coming through. I think we're seeing particularly coaches going into the championship. Um you know, or, or League One that have, that have come in from an e or, or a U23 uh, Premier League team background. There's a few of those cropping up now. So, yeah, I, firstly, I mean, before we get into, into Potter, I think it's just a really interesting um, yeah, dynamic. And I do think the world around English coaches is changing. I think some of the perception is changing. But what, what's really interesting, obviously, about Potter is, is his pathway is completely different to everyone else has gone through through Sweden so yeah that, that's just kind of my reflections on on English coaches really and then um yeah it's worth a chat about about Potter and why he's so different and, and it, is he actually another pathway to explore well and, and I think it sort of fits in and firstly thanks for that I thought that was
1: fascinating in terms of just the sort of appraisal of where the elite clubs have been with um uh let's just call them home countries managers I guess to a degree um because I know it sort of <clears throat> fits in or leads into the sort of Potter discussion because you know, Effectively, you have um, the likes of Gerard and Lampard, for example, who have come, uh, again, Lampard with Chelsea experience, Gerard with Rangers experience and then to, to Villa at the moment, um, as ex-players, um, Arteta as an ex-player, Potter really as someone that was not an elite um, footballer playing at an elite club, but has gone um, and done the hard yards for a considerable amount of time, really away from the limelight, away from any spotlight whatsoever. With a particular skill set in different types of man management as well, to a degree, and I'd be fascinated in in sort of your appraisal as to how that that path has molded him to and shaped him to to the position he's now at. Yeah, I think um,
0: yeah. So, firstly, I think just going overseas is is kind of like a a, a different. Uh, it just gives you a different set of experiences that I think anyone you know just uh, sitting on their couch would, would probably agree with that um, you know, playing overseas, coaching overseas just gives you a kind of different worldview and, and I think um you know everything we heard about pulse Ostersons, the the culture he created there. I mean to take a team from was it the fourth division or maybe even lower up to not just the top division but the Europa League is is just nuts. And I have to say we we do a lot of head coach um higher work and his name came up regularly even before he left ostresons and even before he was in the Europa League um playing uh, against Arsenal which which I think really elevated his Um, the knowledge of him in this country. Um, You know, he came up uh, in a League One clubs um, uh, DD that we did, I think, in early 2018, possibly. And he came up in a couple of others, but obviously by the stage he got to Swansea. So, um, yeah, I I think he's, like, absolutely massive fair play to him to to looking overseas and and seeing that there weren't the opportunities there for coaching in this country. You know, you you might get a job I don't know coaching non-league football, but the pathway up from non-league football just doesn't exist. I mean, you, you can think of one or two non-league players who played in the non-league, but can you think of any coaches that coached in the non-league at, in, at Premier League or Championship level? It's it's pretty rare. And I'm talking non-league. I'm talking below fifth tier here, rather than rather than fourth. Um, so I, yeah, I just think it it's um, it's a massive tick in his box for doing that, and I, th- I think other coaches should think about that. I think obviously what we've got in this country is is a lot of money in the game. Uh, Which keeps people here, whether that's players or coaches. Um, But I think you know when we looked at likes of Sancho and Bellingham going overseas, I think most people saw that as a good thing because a they'd get opportunities, and b actually it's an opportunity to to broaden the mind, learn new language, whatever it is. I saw I saw an interview with Tammy Abraham the other day um, speaking Italian, like that. You know things like that are just going to serve you in in such good stead for whatever you want to go on to do. and look, he's he's had his stripes, he's he's done it um you know not miles away from from England, so there's there's some relevance to to what he's doing. And um and yeah, now he's he's got a mega job and I think he's probably chosen his jobs pretty well to date. I don't know if he's kind of actively made a choice on that, but obviously Osterson's was was probably one of the few few jobs he, he could get at the time. But then Swansea have generally been a pretty well run club, have have I think identified coaches historically pretty well. They had a bit of a blip when they got relegated from the Premier League. But I think if you go back to to Martinez and to um, uh, to Rogers um, uh, and Loudrup and so on, I think they've all done a good job and Botter kind of fits in with the style there. And then Brighton, I think, are really one of the best run clubs in, in the country. You know, he's obviously appointed by, by Dan Ashworth, who's a very good sporting director. So I think he knew he had a good environment there. Chelsea's a totally different kettle of fish, um, you know, new ownership as well. Um, but generally, I think he's chosen his, his jobs quite well and I think he comes across very well. So it, I, I, you know, if, if I were a betting man, I, I'd put quite a lot of money on him becoming an England manager one day because I think he's got a lot going for him no I think I I think that narrative is a really
1: interesting one because you know I think just as in the past a lot of the narrative um when we think about on the player side is always um where is the route in for an elite player to um find a level and then exceed that level and then find the next club, um, get maybe a, a release clause, a certain number, which shows then, you know, uh, higher placed clubs that they can form that there's a good um, player at an undervalue. And then when the player does well, when it exceeds expectations, then they move on accordingly. It almost feels like we're entering and correct me if I'm wrong, almost like an era of um, the same narrative for football managers that, you know, um, I was reading a report in um, Sports Illustrated recently about how um, the most expensive manager in the world at the moment is reportedly to be Nagelsmann when he cost Munich uh, supposedly 25 million euros when they signed him from Leipzig last year. and. It's almost like the the narrative is um, uh, morphing from the the player signature element and player transfer now into um, the the manager transfer market. Even though it's maybe slightly different, dependent on obviously the backroom staff and everything that goes with it. But the the, the the reported number is that Chelsea then have paid the second highest ever transfer fee for a manager in approximately twenty million pounds. Um, query whether that was a release clause that was put into potter's deal um which uh may or may not have included obviously quite a lot of backroom staff um maybe that was part of the renegotiation maybe that was just you know um, a figure that everyone had in mind but I think ultimately we've talked about it before and 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 Omar I I loved, I've loved your analysis in the past which is you know you've sometimes made assessments on how much better a club would be on a points by points basis um, if that player left or was to join um, and the value that was then attached to that player by way of transfer fee and wage calculation um, the same I'm sure if not to a greater extent can be sometimes placed on a manager's capabilities and a manager's value because they obviously have an overarching impact and influence and say in everything that goes on for the performance of that first team squad.
0: Yeah I think the the parallel we we often use, you know, top player in a team, average points in, like average points impact to a top player in the team. would, would tend to be around I anywhere mean, between three and six points. Call it. Um, so, you know, pr- pretty sizable. You, you know, when you sign a player, you're not necessarily sure what impact they're going to have. You you can have a decent guess, um, but yeah, it's um, you know, it'll it t- tend to be around that factor. I think with coaches, it's the, the variance is much bigger. Um, so you could have a coach who's got a big negative impact and or a coach that could have a big positive impact and, and, and a top coach could add adding three six points I think in, in the region of more like eight to ten points um, over a season and we see some of that effect um, from time to time I mean the most obvious one that stood out to me relatively recently was, was Tuchel coming in for, for Lampard and I know obviously we're still talking about Tuchel's replacement now but when he came in for Lampard, I mean, Chelsea's defence was just transformed overnight pretty much. They, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the, the amount of goals per game, they were conceding more than halved with no real change in personnel in that time. And I think, you know, when, if you're conceding, uh, how many goals a season, fewer, um, you know, 20 goals a season, fewer, that's worth roughly, uh, roughly 10 points, um, uh, over a season is roughly kind of half a point. So, um, you know, it, show, it shows, the impact that, that a coach can have, um, over a season and it just shows how important it is to get it right. And I think the, the the biggest issue though with coaches and the reason we don't see more compensation fees is a, there's obviously more that are available on a free um than, than players. So that there's always that temptation. And B, I think with, with players, the skills are quite, if it's the right word, but discrete or quite tangible. Um, You know, they're relatively easy to see. You can see how they might get into your environment. Um, You know, they're, they're a bit more quantifiable. And I think with coaches, It's much harder to measure inputs so it's it's easy to measure out promotions relegations trophies one whatever whatever you want to measure by um but the inputs i.e. the 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 way they communicate and the way that they um you know put an arm around the shoulder the way that they manage players all that all that kind of stuff is is very hard to quantify much harder to quantify them, them with players and i think that's what creates that um that difference really between teams being nervous about paying transfer fees for coaches versus being more confident with players, because with players you, you can measure, you know, yes, you can measure goals of a striker, but you can also measure a whole range of things around their performance that impact their, their goals, whether it's their physical output, whether it's their ability to get into scoring positions, all those kind of things. So that's why I think we see that distinction. But I do think, I, I think it's right that we will see a bit of a move towards um, that where, where more coaches that are doing well will, will be poached because I think clubs are, are recognising it. And I'd be interested in your view on, on how you on how you kind of structure release clause or how, how a club might think about that, because um, I guess they don't want to inhibit their coach. And, and And would a coach normally accept something like that? I don't really know. I'd be interested to get your perspective on it. Well, um, there's a few things there which I think are fascinating. I mean,
1: usually, usually, usually the release buyout clause will, will tend to be there for the benefit of, the, the individual, not necessarily the club. Um, you will tend, if possible, to try and get um, that release buyout clause at a, a decent enough level that when someone serious comes to the party, that they're willing to front up the cash. And that's the same if it's a player transfer or if it's a manager, manager transfer or a manager buyout. The things that usually then will go into the release clause element, buyouts element will be the, the, the amount, obviously, how quickly the amount has got to be paid. Is it one lump sum? Is it six over a particular period of time? Usually the other thing also that sometimes isn't given that much thought in the, in the wider public but is very much considered in, in the actual documentation um, can sometimes be the, the the period by which release buyout clause is available to be used. So what would tend to be the case, at least for because, again, the, the, the slight difference is, is that there's a player transfer window, but there's not a manager transfer window. So, within player transfer window what would tend to be the case if there's a release clause is it can only be activated within a certain amount of time within the transfer window which would then give the selling club that would have to then be able to uh, allow the player to move if the release clause is activated enough time to try and find a replacement now the query is uh, was there it doesn't sound like it was but you know it was just speculating was there a period of time where the release clause was only active for um was it for a period of time obviously outside the window yes because there is no window transfer window for managers um and were the amounts different depending, um, on the, the, Um, the time that effectively Chelsea approached Brighton so um, there's all of those types of factors which would go into the 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 pie one thing I wasn't really thinking about was obviously the the transfer window element and and you know I I wonder whether there's also a question mark generally around and we're going to slightly different territory now about whether there needs to be a manager window does that provide extra certainty does that fetter club's ability to be able to decide what they want to do Um, is there a need to be able to um, uh, provide some certainty and stability to managers, or is that actually too much? Because you know, if I remember correctly, from a few days ago, it was even maybe yesterday or more. Um, uh, Todd Todd Bowley was effectively saying, you know, in his in a, in a nice way that you know ultimately one of the reasons w- uh, with with Tuchel wasn't necessarily you know the result the the Champions League result last week. It was a sort of disconnect between the philosophy of the ownership group ownership group and then and Tuchel um, in terms of academy structure and other things. Now whether that's the case or not the case, um, who knows? You can go on what what um, um, uh, he's saying, but I think all of that also goes into the. The idea of the type of manager um, that certain that fits in with a certain philosophy of the ownership group as well, especially when an ownership group comes in with an incumbent rather than their own um, particular choice, I guess.
0: Yeah, a good example was was obviously Newcastle, where um, you know they they had to wait kind of two months, two three months before they could go and recruit players. But they recognised the first thing that they could do was was change their head coach, which they did swiftly in terms of removing steve bruce it took a bit of time to, to replace him and uh, with someone else but they that was a role and i have heard that a number of times about whether um you know a manager head coach trans great trans, transfer window i mean it, you don't get transfers per se as uh, as you know but it's it's more kind of can you get rid of them um or hire them in, in a particular window which i think it's an interesting concept I, I don't think it i mean you're no better than me is to how much this stuff kind of holds up to any kind of legal scrutiny of, of what should be allowed, can be allowed, and so on. I think it's an interesting concept. I think, if anything, it um, I look at it not from the concept, not from the perspective of um, necessarily being good for integrity or anything like that. I just wonder if it adds a bit of interesting narrative. To be honest, to um, to the season where actually instead of this kind of um, perpetual. You know, buzz throughout the season of who's going to go next. You actually have these kind of points of tension, which, which I think, I, I don't know from a kind of pure, I suppose, marketing perspective is, is kind of interesting. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, well. I mean, maybe that's a good segue in terms of kind of marketing the league and and uh, and what what the Premier League could do more to kind of elevate um, the conversation around it is is their All Star Game, which was raised yesterday by by Todd Bowley. Well, what what was your what was your views on that?
1: Well, <clears throat> you know. I I love these conversations um, that we we have together, in part mainly because it gives me the chance to rack your brains on things that come a little bit left field. And the truth is, is that um, I always think uh, for, you know uh, things staying the same for things staying the same sake always needs to be challenged. And I, I know you're you know a big advocate of thinking outside the box and and thinking about new ways to be able to do things that have um, real substantive substantial benefits and can alleviate potential pain points generally so when when uh you know the Chelsea co-owner um came up with the all-star game idea you know the truth is is that I think there's a market for it. I'm not, you know, it's probably going to be awkward to, to say. And the traditionalists will always say, you know, here's the Americans coming in thinking they know it all and wrecking the room. And, you know, you know, we need to get more towards the American model and forget about relegation. Finally, and it's just a slippery slope and all of, all of the usual stuff. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm intrigued by the possibility of things happening which are slightly different to the norm and then having a proper debate and informed discussion around the the merits or otherwise of um of something like that happening now um klopp came out last night i believe and said you know are arsenal and spurs players going to play together questions around where the north and south actually begins or otherwise and all these practical points but i, I i'm not dismissive of the idea in a way i think it's really important that people are coming up with stuff that um at least can uh, you know start the narrative and can you know bring out i presume pretty strong emotions in people and that's the and that's the point
0: yeah so i am totally with you in terms of i you know i'll be the first person to get on board with kind of left field ideas um i think um my, my challenges on on this were uh, and correct me if i if i miss kind of read it but i think the idea was that you, know, you play a game like this and that gives you kind of funds to to potentially redistribute to EFL and that kind of thing. Um, I, I think the first thing is your, your point. I mean, you think there's a market for it. I, I don't know. I I am less convinced on whether people would kind of take a game like that, to, or, or not not whether they take a game like that seriously. But does, does it does it create mar- marginal value for the league? And and I think probably within England. I think potentially overseas. Right, like a preseason game, um, undoubtedly would get. Um, would get fans in a stadium. The more important thing, I suppose, would be would, would it get sponsors and would it get broadcast, you know, would it get viewers globally? I uh, I don't think you'd get that many in England, but I think you might get some globally. And, and that'd be a big question, which I don't really know the answer to, to be honest. Um, but but obviously the, the big thing that is uh, standing in the way is just the workload on players is um, is pretty pretty staggering already at the moment given the intensity of the modern game and and trying to fit in any more games um is i probably a non-starter to be honest although although i think many many are trying many competitions are trying at the moment um so i think that that's your biggest barrier and then it then goes back to okay well if you are trying to create value and you can't do it through volume of games can can you do it through scarcity somehow um can, can you create something that is very attractive but is but is attractive because it's scarce um and and again i you know i don't know this is a great example but th- things like the rider Cup, the ashes the olympics you know these things that come around every two or four years that they have or you know every four years at home they have value because they're scarce not not because they happen all the time and, and i think i don't know like w- one thing that could be interesting, which I've always thought is, is interesting, is that why don't leagues play against each other? So you have, you know, first v first, first in the Premier League plays first in La Liga, f- second in Premier League plays second in La Liga, and you have like a an overall score, you know, between the two leagues. Like something like that played every four years. I think you can get on board with that from a perspective that it's not a huge workload thing. It's like one game every four years. Uh, I think it's kind of got a narrative interest around what's the best league in the world. I think that, that to me feels like something that um, might have more legs just from a you know narrative player workload um that va- you know kind of value point of view but uh, but I, yeah as, as you said like I, I'm, I'm not necessarily on board with that specific idea but yeah fair, fair play for throwing out some ideas because i think i don't know sometimes the the game that needs a little bit of a shake up a little bit of uh, left field thinking I love that idea. It could almost be like the equivalent of the Anglo-Italian Cup or whatever it used to be. Yes. I can't quite remember whatever it was. But
1: yeah, first in that league of playing first in Premier League and second versus second and there being some type of prize sounds like a, sounds like a really cool idea. The, the reason why I, I'm, I'm intrigued in the idea is because I actually think, um, you know, just like the new gener- newer generations are playing FIFA where, you know, Salah can play with Ronaldo, who can play with De Bruyne. Um you know, that that type of, I just, you know, that sort of fantasy football elements to stuff um, may not obviously be attractive at all to the traditionalists. But for me, just holds really interesting sway of like, could you know, obviously, there's, I definitely agree on the play load and all of those types of elements. But I would just be fascinated to try and get the best players in the league playing with or against each other somehow. Um, uh, makes it quite interesting, but again, I'll probably be lambasted by
0: absolutely everybody. No, well, not not from me. And, and to be fair, I think that that fantasy point is such a good point. I think um, Matt Slater wrote a piece um, at start of the week or over the weekend um, on this, which is around you know, Gen Z, um, you know, see football very differently to the way that your i see football and um, they see they they kind of see the gamification of the sport in many ways and are attracted by that so yeah i appreciate it. we're running over but that um, I, I don't know it's another topic for us to pick up at a later date
1: no i love it well um omar thanks for uh, for chatting as well i thought it was a great great half hour at least i'm slightly biased but i thought it was um, a great chat and um, enjoy the football tonight if you can get to watch it and you too, nice. uh, look forward to chatting next week sounds good cheers mate bye thanks for listening you can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Done Deal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Done Deal, An Insider's Guide to Football Contracts, Multi-Million Pound Transfers and Premier League Big Business a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by Thirteen, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.